Welcome back to the Truth Perspective, everyone. I am Harrison Cayley. Joining me are Corey Schink. Hello. And Adam Daniels. Hello, everyone. Today, we are going to be talking about a bunch of topics, but specifically relating to something that's been in the news lately. Um, big news, even though it's not news at all, that is the Covington Catholic schoolboys um, and the whole you know controversy surrounding that. So if you haven't heard about that, basically, um, a bunch of kids were on some kind of like basically uh, school field trip to uh, participate in the March for Life, um, you know, pro-life march in uh, the Capitol. And we're waiting for their bus, you know, in front of the Lincoln Memorial and had a confrontation with some black, what are they called? Um, something Black Hebrew Israelites? Black Hebrew Israelites, which is like kind of a, um, a hardcore, like radical christian slash jewish kind of thing i've seen them i've seen like videos of them on the streets of like new york and stuff and but i haven't really looked into them very much like you know their their ideology their background but they got into like a verbal sparring match they the kids ended up um you know chanting out their school school chants and then um this um native american who was like kind of with a small group of people doing their own protest counter protest whatever it was um, basically came up to these kids and um, the the one guy Nathan Phillips had a, a stare down with one of these kids and that's what's been in the news for what over a week so far um, it's just been crazy and a huge kind of controversy over re- what really is a non-event basically this native guy comes up to this kid and is drumming and singing like right in his face and the kid is standing there smiles a bit and then just looks at him and doesn't move and kind of waits for it to be over and that's it and it turned into um you know a group of angry young white boys um who har- who surrounded and harassed this native american um you know of course in the current climate that is uh that's wrong of course well it's 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 wrong to to harass someone right but the but you look at the videos and you realize that there's nothing there was nothing to this story because the kid wasn't harassing him. Like the only harassment that was going on was these uh, black Israelites, um, you know, um, spouting out and, and shouting like race, racial epithets and um, and verbal abuse to these kids. And really, I don't know what was going on in this Nathan Phillips mind, but um, according to him, he saw this conflict going on and he wanted to diffuse the tension. So he went in between the two and apparently he was really scared while he was doing this. And he thought these kids were going to tear him apart. But he went up and he was drumming in this kid's face. Now, you read the the story about, about the kid, or the story that the kid tells about his perception of it, and viewing the video, um, his story makes the most sense. First of all, because what he says happened actually matches up with the video of what actually did happen, whereas you know what um, Philip says doesn't match up what, with what the videos actually show happened. Basically, this guy... You know, okay, imagine imagine yourself in this position, and uh, that's what I've done for myself. So you're standing there with your with a group of friends, and a native guy comes up with a drum, you know, makes eye contact with you and walks right towards you and then is looking you right in the face and is drumming in your in your eyes. I'd be I'd be kind of confused. I'd be like, okay, well, um, okay. <laughs> um, I don't know what's going on, but I'm just going to smile. And because uh, I don't, you know, I don't want to cause any confrontation. I don't know what his intentions are. I don't know if this is some kind of like ceremony that, that would it would be rude to interrupt or whatever. Like there's no indication that he wants me to move out of the way because he locked, he made eye contact with me and walked straight towards me. It's not like he was coming around me and kind of like 
you know, signaled to me that he wanted me to move out of the way so that he could get, um, you know, get around me. He just looked at me, came right towards me, and started drumming me. It's like a, basically, it looks like, it, to me, it would look like, oh, he's, he's, for some reason, like, giving me a personal performance. Like, I don't know why. I don't know what's going on. You know, I don't know the language that he's singing in. So I'm just going to sit here or stand here and smile, and, and that's it. You know, that's what I'd do because I wouldn't, I did, I wouldn't know what he wanted, right? And in that situation, you don't do anything. <laughs> and being Canadian, well, maybe, and so maybe I'm projecting my Canadianness onto this kid, but you stand and smile. And, uh, and that's essentially what the kid said that he did. Now, we're not going to actually be talking about these events per se, but the kind of um, narratives that have surrounded them and the reasons why these narratives have come up and why they exist. Because today we're going to be talking about... Um, Another section in the book, Political Ponderology, we've slowly been going through various you know, chapters in the book, so today we're going to be covering the last few, sh few sections of the chapter Ponderology in the book. Um, so specifically in relation to this incident, uh, oh, by the way, it's chapter four in Ponderology. There's one section in this chapter uh, called Ponderization that kind of taught, well, it, it, it makes sense of what has been going on in the States especially since the you know, election of Donald Trump. But it has been kind of proceeding since uh, not just his election, but the election campaign before then, and of course, you know, just all the time leading up to that, because the current climate didn't come out of a vacuum, and you know, Donald Trump didn't come out of a vacuum. Um, there are specific things, like identifiable things and trends that have been going on for years that have kind of just reached this point where um, things are kind of just... Um, you know, on the edge of chaos. Um, they're not, they're, I, I'd say they're not chaotic yet. Like, things aren't, actually aren't that bad in the States. As, as crazy as all the news is, I mean, look at what, what's happening in Venezuela. It's like, when you have a, a foreign government that is saying, oh, well, your president is, isn't actually your president. Um, here, we're going to tell you who your president is. Um, and there's actual rioting on the streets and fighting and clashes between opposing um, you know, parties opposing, um, you know, groups in the country, like, that's pretty chaotic. The United States isn't there yet, but there's all of the um, kind of precursors for that to happen. Basically, um, the way I'd put it, like, the U.S. is is on a trajectory to something of that sort happening. Um, because if, when you look at the groups involved, you have many groups that are fully willing to use violence, if given the opportunity. So far, it hasn't gotten that bad. Of course, you know, you hear stories and you see videos of, like, Antifa guys punching people in the streets, but it hasn't reached a point of, you know, all-out, like, urban warfare between opposing groups, um, at least not yet. So in this section on ponderization, <clears throat> well, first of all, what is ponderization? Like, um, I'm, I'm sure if you guys, if our listeners have listened to previous shows, you know, some of the basic terminologies from ponderology, poneros, um, ex like, of course, meaning evil in Greek. So, ponderization is like the the evilification of um, of a group. Essentially, that's how Lobachevsky de describes it. So, he's essentially trying to figure out how a group becomes evil, um, and you know, with his definition of evil, like he he's of the um, he he isn't av averse to the like idea of moral evil or even like possibly supernatural evil, like evil as a an actual thing, but he talks about it in terms of like psychobiology. That when we look at the the behaviors and the people 
we and actions we consider as evil, and you trace back the causality, you often or you will find that there is a um, a pathway, a causal pathway that leads back to some kind of identifiable psychopathology. And this is the same argument that Adrian made, Adrian Rain makes in Anatomy of Violence, is tracing back the you know the causal links um, of evil. Um, well, that lead to evil actions and uh, and um, well, yeah, evil behaviors, criminality. So he starts out this section by um, one of the first points he makes is that the kind of the first step in the in the corruption or perversion or you know devolution of a group, and he's speaking in terms of like social and political groups, um, like specifically he he's often referencing like the Soviet Union and the the rise of communism so this would be the uh, of communism so this would be the communist party um, before during and after you know the institution of a of a communist state specifically in the Soviet Union but elsewhere too but he's looking for the generalities so the things that apply in all groups at all times not just the Soviet Union so he identifies this first step as a kind of a, a moral warping so a warping of the moral framework of the group in question, because all groups have a moral framework, whether it's explicitly said or not. They've got like a set of values, a set of ideals, but which basically um, govern their actions. And this can be in like a party platform, or or you know an explicit manifesto, or it can just be you know the the more or less unstated um, rules and. Um, um, like traditions or just norms of any group of people. But this first step in this polarization process is a, like a warping of these morals. So the specific example he gives of that, um, and the kind of like the essential example of this, is that an understanding of human nature, like individual human nature. So this would be like, I, you know, I, in my interactions with others, I have an under, a, a, like a loose understanding of human nature and I look at you and I say okay this is what you're doing here's what I know about humans and here's what I know about you and this would kind of explain it it's basically this is how you interact with people in your everyday life with your family members and your friends you have this understanding but what happens is that those concepts whether or not you have them explicitly like defined in your own mind these concepts um, they take a turn towards um, like definite, simplistic, and like dogmatic views of human nature, and so this would be like all X are like this, right? So this is what this is why this is actually what um, like leftists are traditionally and even nowadays explicitly what they are against things like racism and sexism. That would be you know looking at an identifiable group and then judging all members of that group by the kind of simplistic. Um, stereotypes or or whatever that will apply that might even apply to a majority of people in that group but still everyone is judged in terms of who who uh, what their group is as opposed to who they are individually so this is the first moral warping that happens in a group and um, you could kind of uh, this is the way Jordan Peterson talks about it too it's to take the the individualized understanding of humans so seeing humans as individual as individuals and instead and then seeing them as merely members of a collective, so that um, one is equivalent to the other. And you see this in warfare, you see this in, gr in group conflicts of any kind. It's like, well, one of your people did this to me, therefore I am now justified in doing the same to you, even if you had nothing to do with it, um, like uh, in the actual facts of the matter. It's like, this, by, by mere virtue of either the color of your skin, or your nationality, 
or your presence in just your you know your presence your 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 own self identity as a member of the group in which the person that did wrong also exists by that virtue you know you are therefore guilty and i am therefore justified that is actually the the justification what we were talking about last week with um, salafi jihadism that is the explicit argumentation that these guys use for attacks on civilians and women and children and whoever it's that you are a member of the group that wronged us therefore we are justified in killing you and taking vengeance that's the first step now the second step is um well we won't actually get to the second step yet but if we look at some more of these actual specifics this will get into some of the stuff of why we started out with this story of the the, the maga hat kids um because when do these kind of things happen like uh, Lobachevsky basically asked the question well when do these um this type when does this type of moral warping of groups happen and he gives three examples uh three kinds of um, periods in which such a thing would happen and he calls them um, like periods of crisis so it's in periods of crisis that groups weaken and he gives the examples of like external conflicts so this would be like warfare or you know war between nations so this like an external conflict with another group so if the u.s was at war with someone else for instance well which it always is and um the second one is an overall kind of societal and spiritual crisis so this would be the thing that um, that he describes as um, um, as having been described in various kind of sociological works over the years, um, and we talked about this too, and uh, you know a while ago when we, when we were covering one of these chapters, and that is basically the the state that a society gets into when it kind of loses touch with its original values, the spiritual values or just the higher ideals that it used to have, and well, and it still has maybe in words, they lose their they lose their meaning, they lose their relevance. And so people get into this kind of like spiritual malaise where the, the old traditional values just don't have the, like the motiv motivational um, force or appeal that they used to. And so that's when you get into, into things like social anomie and nihilism. And basically like people searching for meaning because they can't anymore find meaning in what, what their, you know, their people used to. And the third is um, a, a basically a, a like a, a a crisis in the hystericization of society, and so we talked about that too. So this is a, a very specific kind of like um, condition of societies where there is a spread in hysteria, and so we talked about like hysteria in the show that we did on social contagion, where it is basically like a like an overly an over emotional um, like reaction to like small stimuli that leads to this kind of like fearful, paranoid, um, like hyper, hyper emotional, like reactivity in individuals, but also in groups, because like Lobachevsky points out, and like the, the guy that uh, Kravitz, who wrote that social contagion book points out, is that hysteria is contagious, it is a social contagion. So, and especially so if we, if you look at the kind of elite class or the higher class in a society, that will then spread throughout society, not to everyone, but it will spread to the, to the point where it's like large groups of people are suffering from the same hysteria. And we see that, for example, with the anti-Russian um, like hysteria that's out there to the point where you know there are actually a lot of people that believe that Russia actually did everything bad that happens. It's not that they're just like um, lie, lying and conning the, the public. There are a few people like that. I'd say probably a minority, but the, the, the vast majority of the people that you see in the media actually believe 
that you know uh, Vladimir Putin controls everything, and that is hysteria. Like these people are are kind of certifiable, or you know, um, is that the right word? Like they yeah. are diagnosable. They like <laughs> what's the word when they when you can lock someone up? <clears throat> yeah, I think certifiable yeah. will work. And so the um, well, b- before I go on, did you guys have anything to say about uh, about those points that I've made so far? <clears throat> Okay, well then, uh, let me just make a few more points. Um, I actually want to read a couple things from uh, from this section, just to give some context. So, first of all, um, so um, this is right in the in the section on the polarization process. He says that um, so he's talking about the moral warping of groups' ideational concepts, and then he gives the example of like. Um, the Christian Empire that adopted like the Roman legal system, and uh, the Roman legal system was kind of like um, like it's like a one size fits all, right? So the individual fits within the law. The law doesn't accommodate itself to the individual, and that led to the kind of like Christian imperialism. Basically, cr- the Christians, uh, the Christian Empire adopted the Roman imperial methods. So he says that this fact could justify the conviction um, of moralists that maintaining a union, a group's ethical discipline, and ideational purity is sufficient protection against derailing or hurtling into an insufficiently comprehended world of error. Such a conviction strikes a ponderologist as a unilateral oversimplification of an eternal reality which is more complex. After all, the loosening of of ethical and intellectual controls is sometimes a consequence of the direct or indirect influence of the omnipresent factors of the existence of deviance in any social group along with some other non-pathological human weaknesses. So basically, um, what he's saying here is that, um, you know, when, when just ordinary people look at a phenomenon like this, they'll say, okay, well, the, the, the way to avoid, you know, groups actually, um, like, corrupting themselves and getting worse over time is just to, like, uphold the, the original strict morals, right? So for, in this case, for the, you know, the American left, um, it would be just go back to those original ideals and just you know hold hold tight to them and uh, and just don't give in to um, you know letting these concepts get out of control or get, letting these values get out of control. Um, and the point Lobachevsky is making is that that actually won't work because what's already happened is that the movement has allowed into its midst um, the 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 presence of like a group of actually psychopathological individuals individuals with severe personality disorders who are then having an impact on the movement and he points out that the the presence of individuals like this like this uh psychopaths in particular like it actually further deepens the moral uh the moral failings of the group in question so it creates this vicious this vicious circle where you know the the people um, they want like uh, like a moral purity, or that you know they think they should be um, they should they should just be more ideationally correct, like more ideologically correct. And but with the presence of these um, psychopaths and other you know personality disordered individuals, things just keep getting worse. And because these other people are kind of like creating new standards. And the and the, the like the normal people in these groups don't know what's going on. They're like they're kind of at a loss because they have no frame of reference for what's actually happening. They might not even see what's happening at first. And 
so what they what what Lobachevsky calls this is the first criterion of panorogenesis, and that is the you know the the refusal and the inability to identify and see the presence of pathological individuals. So basically, this is kind of a it's the the same kind of thing. <clears throat> it's kind of like the mirror version of what I was just talking about when you when you see all members of a group of another of an external group as the same, you know, and it is bad. So I don't like this group of people. You're a member of this group of people. Therefore, I don't like you. Or therefore, you're guilty of what this other um, person who has, shares the same feature is, uh, as you did. Um, this is kind of the mirror image in the sense that um, as a member of the group, I now see every member of my group as this um, ideal, like higher being. Um, you know, we are all better than you. And if you're on my team, I'm going to have your back. You're good. And end of story. So what that means is that if you have a genuinely reprehensible person in your movement, um, you will defend them, and you won't, you won't even be able to, identi uh, to identify them as being um, somewhat unhinged or deranged. And that feeds into the, this vicious circle, which just opens the door for more pathological influence, which further corrupts your group and whatever ideology you are um, you know, a member of. So uh, I want to read one more paragraph from this section. He says, Thus, whenever we observe some group member being treated with no critical distance, although he betrays one of the psychological anomalies familiar to us, the, the personality disorders essentially, and his opinions being treated as at least equal to those of normal people, although they are based on a characteristically different view of human matters, we must derive the conclusion that this human group is affected by a ponderogenic process, and if measures are not taken, the process shall continue to its logical conclusion. We shall treat this in accordance with the above described first criterion of ponderology, which retains its validity regardless of the qualitative and quantitative features of such a union. The atrophy of natural critical faculties with respect to pathological individuals becomes an opening to their activities, and at the same time, a criterion for recognizing the association in concern as ponderogenic. So now I want to make some references, like make some applications of this to the you know the incident we've talked we're talking about with uh, these black Israelites and the MAGA hat kids and uh, Nathan Phillips. So if you look at the news coverage that that's been going on about this, it is kind of like um, kind of like uniformly against this kid. Um, to the point of even excusing what these black Israelites were saying, because they were really the most kind of um, um, offending and like kind of reprehensible elements in this group. Of course, it depends who who you ask, right? Because they're because when you do ask people, when you see what these journalists were writing, it were it was these kids that were the most reprehensible, simply because they were simply because they were wearing mega hats. Um, well, and and that's really all that these. Um, that the journalists and the people on Twitter have against them. Because if you look at what they actually did, they were singing school cheers and wearing MAGA hats. There was no evidence that they were doing anything to even the black national, the well, not black nationalists, the black, black Israelites, or Nathan Phillips. Um, like there are, uh, a lot of these people involved said they were cheering build the wall, but that's not in any of the video evidence. There, I read another article today that that suggested that maybe they were chanting build the wall when um, like earlier in the day or earlier in, in this encounter, because some some girls 
were walking by and they told newspapers that they were walking by and these kids were uh, all of a sudden started yelling at them and and they just kind of laughed it off and and went by and they were saying that they were chanting build the wall but who knows like that is even that isn't on video so hard to hard to know that if that's even true but basically um, these kids are evil because they were wearing MAGA hats when there was nothing in their actual behavior that was in any way like morally um, like that uh, was violating any kind of like regular human normal like moral norms. It uh, just you know there was nothing like that that you could, that was observable. Whereas you see these uh, black Israelites who are just um, like totally insulting these kids. Um, they're the ones like using. They were actually calling this um, this young black kid who was within the group like the N word because he he was associating with these white kids in in mega hats. So just you know, just first of all, like imagine this scenario. So you've got a bunch of white kids, not all of them wearing mega hats. Some are, some aren't. And there's this little black kid that's mixed in with them, and he's friends with all of them. Yeah. Um. So what like what what do you th- like what kind of conclusion can you draw from that? It's like are well, are can, these guys racist? Can they really be racist if they have, you know, I mean, clearly he's, you know, somebody who went to the school. Um, but I mean, like, you know, watching the videos of them interacting, they're like, as soon as the black Israelites were like calling this black kid out and and uh, at one point telling him, you know, you need to get out of that group because when you get to be an adult, they're going to take your organs. Yeah, they're going <laughs> to steal your organs. <laughs> But then, like, you know, as they're yelling that to him, like, all the guys around him, like, grab him, and they're like, no, dude, we got you. Yeah. Yeah, and so they show this support. So, really, like, for from an, if, uh, if an alien anthropologist were to come and had, you know, knowledge of human psychology, he, he would look and say, okay, well, there's a, just a regular bunch of kids, mm-hmm. and here's a bunch of, like, kind of crazy, potentially pathological, like, psychopathological individuals that are members of, like, what would be, like, a, radic- a radical movement of some sort who are causing trouble and obviously itching for a fight. Oh, yeah. And that's kind of where our attention should be directed if we want to look at, you know, a, a, po- a possible, you know, a potential source of, of conflict and, um, you know, troublemaking. And the other side of, of this whole equation, too, is um, the people that are reporting it or calling the kids out. So all of the people who've gotten onto Twitter and I can't remember who the guy was, but there was one guy in particular um, who called for these kids, just kids, innocent kids. They didn't do anything. They just stood there with a hat Mm -hmm. uh, calling for them to get thrown into a wood chipper. Yep. And that was actually, he was um, an employee of Disney. He might've even even been a producer or a director. Yeah. And so he had this, this little drawing of, you know, someone getting shoved into a wood chipper and all the blood, like, you know, getting shot out of it. And he was saying these kids should be thrown in the wood, ch- wood chipper. You look at the Twitter, I mean, these people go crazy. Like, there were k- people calling for them to all be locked in a school and burned down or shot. Mm-hmm. Um, that's another thing that these uh, black Israelites were saying, is that um, all these are future school shooters because mm-hmm. they're young white men. And if you look at, uh, and you know, how many black school shooters are there? Well, not very many, if at all. Most, most of them are white. Just like most people in the United States are white, but uh, you know, statistics don't really matter. But yeah, well, I won't even get into statistics of school shooters because even that is there are some politically incorrect things to say about that too. But um, like so, so you have these black Israelites who are generalizing mm-hmm. about uh, about these kids, not seeing them as individuals, mm-hmm. um, because even just consi- you have to consider possibilities when you're 
engaged in any kind of human interaction. Like, here's a bunch of people in mega hats. Can I make the conclusion definitively about any individual person wearing a mega hat what they actually believe? No. No, you can't. And you would be an idiot for thinking so. Um, because I personally know people that wear mega hats either just to be funny or just be- as a joke or because, you know, it's kind of cool or whatever. Like, they, you can't make a conclusion about the totality of a person's beliefs um, or even, you know, their unconscious biases, whatever, by the fact that they're wearing a mega hat, and especially if they're a kid. Mm-hmm. Like, kids don't have, for the most part, like a, you know, a super well-defined, um, like, moral philosophy and outlook on life. You know, they kind of follow fads, too. I mean, the kid that was standing up in front of um, Nathan Phillips, he even said he just bought his hat that day. You know, they were, they were selling them on the, on the side of the road. So it's like, you know, just picture yourself as a 16-year-old kid or, you know, 13 to 16, however old all these kids were. It's like, you do what your friends are doing. Yeah, you think you see this and you think it's cool for whatever reason, so you go ahead and do it. And then next thing you know, you're... <laughs> mm-hmm. Your but, face is posted all over the internet. But if you actually like, uh, but what is the way to like judge an individual? Well, it's by the individual's actions. Mm-hmm. You know, this kid did a, a faux pas by putting himself in a situation that, when viewed at, could be interpreted ambiguously. That's the worst thing he did. Um, whereas these, you know, uh, black Israelites were actually, you know, but by judge by by viewing their actual um, um, actions on, in this encounter, um, you know, I wouldn't want to as- personally associate with any one of them. You know, I wouldn't want to have any of them, you know, come into my house and eat dinner <laughs> um, by virtue of their own actions, you know, and the, the, you know, their own character as, as exemplified or, you know, as demonstrated in the actions that they took at, you know, during this encounter. So, um, there's this, in a, uh, like, going back to what Ponerol, what uh, Lobachevsky writes in this chapter, basically says that you know these, the, the presence of pathological individuals in a in a in a group like this in a what he calls a ponerogenic union, you know, leads to this inability to see the pathology in one's own group, um, you know, in, in the individuals in one's group, but also just in general the the inability to see clearly. It's like he says for an outside observer, like someone not you know, familiar with psychological concepts uh, and the stuff in this book in particular, that they see it as just people turning into halfwits. It's like, well, you know, these people just seem like they've become idiots. Um, and that's what it does appear like. You know, there are explanations for it, like he gets into, like there's a whole bunch of things going on. But, um, but that's really what it looks like. It's like people lose the ability to see clearly. They lose the ability to read the, psych- the psychological situation of, of any interaction. And that's really what we've seen a great example of with this kid. It's like people are looking at this encounter, looking at this video, and coming to conclusions about it that, that are not present in the actual video, in the actual evidence. Um, they're losing the ability to actually like, read a situation. They, they, see, they see one thing that happened um, when that thing didn't happen, and there are alternative possibilities too and you see and like this social contagion like this hysteria it spreads so that everyone has the same opinion about it so you look on twitter and um you know at least within this like um you know identifiable group movement community you know the like um anti-trump um more like leftist kind of 
group, like grouping of individuals, they all share the same opinion. They all are seeing the same thing when there is no evidence that what they are seeing actually happened. Like they, it does look like to an outsider as if they have turned into complete idiots. And, you know, I'll be generous and say that a lot of these people, they aren't complete idiots. Like these people in any other situation would be relatively intelligent. You know, they might even have a lot of common sense in certain situations. But when it gets to like this political issue, they turn in, they turn into complete idiots. It's like, it's like you're, you're seeing someone who is on a lot of drugs and uh, is, you know, really like mentally unhinged. It's, it's kind of crazy. Right. It seems like it's a symptom of uh, what Lobachevsky talks about when he speaks of the different kinds of egotism that the, you know, and he, he kind of breaks it down, uh, his idea of uh, how egotism per, uh, kind of propels this process. And there's uh, different kinds of egotism. There's the one for that children have, you know, just being a child, you're childishly, you know, self-absorbed. And then, you know, if you if you're not properly raised, then you you, the, you just have that for the you know most part of your life. You struggle to become an adult and to put others and uh, you know society above your own selfish needs. And uh, so that's a secondary kind of egotism, um, but it's an excessive form of egotism that that seems to be at play with a lot of these people who you would say are otherwise intelligent, but their IQ is not enough to protect them from the polarization process, which is mm -hmm. extremely important. There's an emotional education that takes place there that needs to take place. And then this third form of egotism, which is the pathological egotism, which is... Uh, which is a symptom of a, a, some some other form of it could be like an organic uh, pathology or just a, a character uh, a big large character deficit that you get from from taking in pathological material. But uh, there's a pathological egotism that you see evidenced in these people who continue to double down on this story, continue to repress the reality of what's been shown in the pictures, you know, uh, and mm -hmm. the actual video footage. And instead, they continue to double down on it, and and you know, when faced with the the thought of you know whether the world is right and they're wrong, they're like, no, the world can't be right because I'm right. I, you know, th it's this this very very narcissistic delusional world that these uh, the, a lot of these individuals live in, and that's the element that uh, continues to push the uh, push this party over the ledge. Mm -hmm. Really, the driving force it seems like behind the, uh, the this uh, polarization process. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe to to move on to some of the just the other things that Lobachevsky talks about, we can like uh, make reference to to this event or others as we as we kind of go on. Just to go further into this polarization process, um, one of the phenomenons phenomena he talks about is that the the kind of the pathological individuals that join groups, um, keeping in mind the things that have already happened, you know, this loss of of uh, you know mental clarity and the in a, the inability to see pathology, um, keeping those things in mind, the the regular members of these groups tend to then see um, these pathological people that kind of ascend to the to kind of positions of influence and leadership within the group. They tend to see them as like unique geniuses. So these would be this would be initially the the roles that spellbinders take. Um, so these people are kind of head on held up on a on a pedestal, as opposed to being seen as just kind of like mentally deranged people, possibly criminals, 
um, you know, and normal society has their particular way of thinking about people like that, right? They're, they're kind of, it is a, a negative opinion that normal people hold for people like that. You know, they, they, they see them, <clears throat> they, they judge them in terms of, mor- of morality, right? It's like, well, those people are evil people. But when this process is going on within a group, these people are actually then elevated and esteemed. And an example I just saw today, <clears throat> you know, I'll make a, a quick judgment, not knowing a lot about the case, but just, you know, based on what the article says, there's this, uh, this rabbi in Israel who's a convicted sex offender who is, um, um, he has just been exposed as like taking money, like taking thousands of dollars for offering prayers to like people in the hospital, like, like sick, uh, uh, sick loved ones and things like that. So just recently, these journalists in Israel, they, they heard about this and they kind of like planned their own little sting operation where they created like a fake relative that, and they said that he was brain dead and called up this rabbi's association and said, oh, well, you know, what can you do for him? And, he, and so go back and forth a bit and the rabbi gets on the phone and says, oh, well, you know, give, give me $5,000 and he'll wake up. You know, I've had, I, I can do miracles. I'll bring him back from, the, from being brain dead. You know, I'll... I'll I'll say my prayer for him, and he'll come back, and he'll wake up, and, and you'll see brain activity. Just you, you just have to give me the money by by one a.m. today, you know. <laughs> and uh, and so this rabbi is like making, uh, and then there's apparently audio, uh, an audio recording of him and his followers, and he's telling them, and he's kind of like he's saying how he basically ripped off this this one woman for tens of thousands of dollars, and they're all laughing about it. And um, and so this guy, he is essentially like a you know this this um you know Jewish cult leader in the in his own movement he's got this he's got all of his followers and his followers all see him as this as this great guy and he really is just a common criminal who has managed to find a niche for himself in the you know the the Jewish religious community um and you know bilking families of thousands of dollars for and and the thing is is that he he said that uh, for this like a uh, fake person with brain with uh, like uh, you know no brain activity. Um, he said he he actually wouldn't even come to the hospital. He'd just say the prayer you know from his own home, and uh, and that would be be good enough. So how generous, <laughs> yeah, how generous. So, but there are individuals like this in all groups, right? And the, and the same would apply to you know like the the kind of charismatic imams in the you know Salafi jihadist movement um, who are kind of revered by. Um, by the jihadists themselves, and these can be people that you don't even know the name of. Like you might, if you re- if you're really following the Syrian war, for instance, you might know a few of them. Um, a few of the guys like in Syria, like Julani, who's the you know the head of Al Nusra in Idlib, and uh, but even just look at the at the the reverence with which these guys hold, like people like Osama bin Laden and uh, you know Al Awlaki, um, you know American that was killed in Libya by a U.S. airstrike. Um, years ago and guys like him it's like but the you know there are living ones today too and the who who are just revered when you actually read what they write and see what they do and look at their character and they're actually like you know complete kind of uh well crazy people um but what happens when when these people are held to this uh you know seen as these unique geniuses it it results in this kind of um, overturning of the the system of value, um, of the way in which reality is perceived. So whereas previously these people would be seen as, as just common criminals and kind of beneath contempt, now they are elevated to the level of unique geniuses um, 
by the same kind of logic, people who were um, normal and used to be kind of held in esteem as like unique individuals and like independent and think for themselves are then seen as bad and wrong. So like normal people embodying normal values and kind of like what used to be considered normal and good are then rejected. And it is the conformity that now becomes good and moral. So this kind of inversion of of uh, the moral framework is what he calls like paramoralism. He uses it in a specific example, as in like a statement with like moral force that is actually that actually like the moral that is um, implied or explicitly stated in that statement is actually the opposite of what a you know of a real moral. Um, but like in general, the 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 concept is this inversion, this just this total inversion of morality, so that. When in a in a group, when you have an individual who is like thinking for themselves and who might point out what is wrong, what they see going wrong, that individual is then identified as morally bad and wrong, whereas they are actually the the morally right one and and the good one in the group. And this leads people in such groups, um, well, such people in such groups, to kind of. Either either leave the group because of the, they're disappointed in the, in the direction that it's going, and you can see this in kind of like the flight from the Democratic Party and from the left, either to the center or even to the right in current days. You know, people like even um, Dave Rubin and a lot of the you know the people around him, like individuals like that, um, or like Sargon of Akkad, who is uh, you know a traditional liberal and who um, you know has a lot of um, what what in the states would be considered like democratic views. Um, who just has like nothing but contempt for the the left because they have gone so far left, and so you have people that leave on their own because they're disgusted with what they see. But you also have people that are rejected because of reasons like like this, right? But they they are they think too much, or they're you know they're too independent, or um, well they're perceived as a threat because the only way that this movement can now survive, having gone th- the through the transformation that it has gone through is by bringing up the walls within the group and ejecting anyone that, uh, that that poses a threat to that system. So ironically, it's like, it really, you know, Trump and, and, the, and the Republicans are calling for a wall on the border when really the, like the, the Democratic Party have built a, an ideological wall around themselves that they are seemingly unwilling to, um, you know, to open up in order to let new ideas in and in order to, um, well, and in, in order to let... You know, more reasonable pe- people out into the into the real world. Um, it is this. It has become like this ideological prison. Um, yeah, that's the best way to describe it. I think. Now, just uh, I want to read a few more things from uh, from this section. So, he's talking about um, this stage in the in the group because. What, ha- what essentially happened, the normal people tend to leave, more pathologicals join in, and he calls this a period of, like a, of stabilization within the group. So this is when the, the kind of ideology kind of solidifies, and um, it's a stormy period at first, but things kind of stabilize. And this might be um, um, analogous, or this might be like a description of what we described last week in the Salafi Jihadist movement in like the early 2000s to like 2010 when the you know the, the ideology of that group solidified it's like that's we if if that's the case then that would be when like the the most pathological mo- mo- uh, members joined the least pathological members left and we kind of had this 
now we have this kind of stabilized movement with a with a, a, an internal structure that is dominated by these types of features. So with that in mind, he says that this is the stormy period of a group's polarization, followed by a certain stabilization in terms of content, structure, and customs. Rigorous selective measures of a clearly psychological kind are applied to new members, so as to include so as to exclude the possibility of becoming sidetracked by defectors. People are observed and tested to eliminate those characterized by excessive mental independence or psychological normality. The new internal function uh, created the new internal function created is something like a psychologist, and it doubtless takes advantage of the above described psychological knowledge collected by psychopaths. So basically, there is like a, um, um, a selective, an actual selection process at this point, where it's like, no, you're too normal, you can't come in. Like we don't, we actually don't want you. And and what you can see that right where um, people just expressing opinions, let's say on Twitter or or whatever, who will basically say, oh, I agree with you on this, but uh, but you know I can't you know I can't get behind this. It's like no, you're you're not you're not part of our group. You're not allowed. It's like you in fact might be alt right or a Nazi, and there is like there's no middle ground for these people. It's like you're either one of us and you agree with everything we say, or we're going to find something about you and that that tells us that you're a Nazi. And so it's like, you know, everyone to the right of them, of, of, the, of the far left, is a Nazi. And I was thinking about uh, Ricky Gervais in particular, because mm -hmm. he had a tweet just recently um, talking about how he was, uh, like you said, he was all for pretty much everything um, on the Democratic platform, mm -hmm. but he came out recently in support of free speech. And because he said this one thing about being pro-free speech, he's now been basically ostracized mm -hmm. and attacked yeah. and vilified as a Nazi and an alt-right member and all of that. Mm -hmm. Even though he still supports all these other things. Not good enough. Not good enough. No. No, and he's probably a, he's probably a sexist sexual assaulter too. Yeah, I'm probably. guessing. I don't know for sure, but I'm sure he is. Oh yeah, <laughs> I bet he's got like a closet full of MAGA hats too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, I'm going to read the next little bit too. So it should be noted that certain of these exclusionary steps taken by a group in the process of polarization should have been taken against deviants by the ideological group in the beginning. So rigorous selective measures of a psychological kind taken by a group is not necessarily an indicator that the group is polarogenic. Rather, one should carefully examine what the psychological selection is based on. If any group seeks to avoid polarization, it will want to exclude individuals with any psychological dependence on subjective beliefs, rights, rituals, drugs, and certainly those individuals who are incapable of objectively analyzing their own inner psychological content or who, who reject the process of positive disintegration. So here he's just making the, the comparison like a, a, a deviant group will eject normal members, and a normal group should eject pathological members. Otherwise, the pathological members will be the, will end up being the ones ejecting the normies. It's like, um, this this should be a normal pra practice, but it isn't. Well, you know, I wouldn't, I, I can't say that as a blanket statement. Like, you know, you'll, um, I think on any social level, this happens to some degree just naturally. Like you have a group of friends and one of and one of you is just like, you know, everyone else kind of disagrees. Okay, this guy is like, there's something seriously wrong with this guy. Not like wrong in the sense of, oh, you know, um, 
you know, you really, you're, you really need help and uh, we, we want to help you. But no, this guy, there's something wrong with this guy in the sense that none of us like him. In fact, we're afraid of him and he's just a bad influence and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so a group of people will be like, okay, well, we're just not hanging out with him anymore. Or we just try to avoid him at all costs. It's like that kind of, that kind of thing happens naturally, I think, to a large degree. Um, but that stops happening in these specific examples that Lobachevsky's talking about. Um, but w but it gets kind of harder when you have um, like a larger group, whether it's a business or like a political party. It's like, how do you control who joins your party, right? It's kind of hard. Um, but the same process can and should happen. It's like where, where um, um, like I remember seeing a video by Project Veritas, like I think it was during the election or after the election, where they're interviewing some of these kind of like... Um, democratic operatives like the people that that are um that like it's their job basically to kind of fix elections and do dirty tricks and things like that and and you just you see them talking and they like they're you can tell there's something seriously wrong with these people psychologically um and and yet there they are they're part of like the these democratic campaigns and i'm sure every campaign has them you know republican too but they're obviously and there's obviously something wrong with them and they shouldn't have been allowed in the first place. But, you know, that's the way politics works, right? Oh, well, we need people like that um, to do the, the dirty work, right? That's the, that's the argument that people have for the CIA too. It's like, oh, well, we need, we need heartless SOBs to do the dirty work to keep America safe, even if that means, you know, um, kidnapping and torturing young children and, um, you know, raping them in front of their parents. We need someone to do that, um, you know, for American freedom. Um, that is the wrong. <laughs> that, is, yeah. that is the wrong path to take. Um, but instead, like he says, you know, so some of the criteria you should look for, you know, people with any kind of um, over-the-top psychological dependence on subjective beliefs, rites, rituals, drugs, and um, people who aren't willing to look at their own psychology, who aren't willing to take criticism, and who avoid the process of positive disintegration, basically won't change, won't learn anything. People who who won't um, like self-correct, um, but even then, like the subjective beliefs, rights, rituals, drugs, like there are a lot of um, people like that, like kind of crazy ideological people that um, that are kind of like fascinated with the odd th odd things in a, in an ideology, who kind of become fanatics. It's like um, you should avoid fanatics, like at all costs, you know. And it's especially hard. Like I give the example of um, of that uh, that rabbi in Israel. It's like when you have an explicitly religious movement, it's gonna be that's gonna be extra hard because by nature, like religious movements have strange beliefs. Every religion has different beliefs, and they're all strange um, in relative to the all the other religious movements. <laughs> and so it's gonna be kind of extra hard. But still, you can pick up the flavor pretty readily. It's like when even if you if you go to church, I'm sure you remember. You know, most people that go to church, most people that were in your church were relatively, like, normal people. But then you had, like, the crazy people, right? Well, that person's, like, there's something, like, a bit over the top about them. Like, they're, there's, you, you can feel it more than anything with it, when you don't know about these sorts of things. It's just like, you know, oh, there's that person again. It's like, wow. Um, and then, in the case with this rabbi, he just happens to be running the show in his little, uh, his little movement. But, you know, watch out for that kind of thing. And, um, you know... Well, same thing with drugs and uh, you know rites and rituals. Watch out for the satanic people. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Continuing on in the next paragraph, uh, one more. 
In a group in this process of polarization, spellbinders take care of ideological purity. The leader's position is relatively secure. Individuals manifesting doubt or criticism are subject to paramoral condemnation. Maintaining the utmost dignity and style, leadership discusses opinions and intentions which are psychologically and morally pathological. Any intellectual connections which might reveal them are, as such are eliminated, thanks to the substitution of premises operating in the proper subconscious process of the, uh, on the basis of prior conditioned reflexes. I can just ignore that sentence for now. Um, it's in a different section. An, uh, an, an objective observer might wish to compare this state to one in which the inmates of an asylum have taken over running of the institution. The association enters the state wherein the whole has donned the mask of ostensible normality, um, etc. So yeah, the inmates actually have taken over the asylum. And uh, uh, yeah, I think I will leave that there for that section. Well, just a note on the spellbinders and their role in the entire process, because it's really interesting to um, to read what he has to write about them. So this is what he says about the spellbinder. Uh, Triumphant repression of self-critical or unpleasant concepts from the field of consciousness gradually gives rise to the phenomena of conversive thinking or paralogistics, paramoralisms, and the use of reversion blockades, which we'll get into that maybe a little bit later. They stream so profusely from the mind and mouth of the spellbinder that they flood the average person's mind. Everything becomes subordinated to the spellbinder's overcompensatory conviction that they are exceptional, sometimes even messianic. Such an individual fishes an environment or society for people amenable to his influence, deepening their psychological weaknesses until they finally join together in a ponerogenic union. On the other hand, people who have maintained their healthy critical faculties intact, based upon their own common sense and moral criteria, attempt to counteract the spellbinder's activities and their results. In the resulting polarization of social attitudes, which we're obviously seeing today, each side justifies itself by means of moral categories. That is why such common sense resistance is always accompanied by some feeling of helplessness and deficiency of criteria. And I was thinking, well, just back to the Covington uh, debacle, the non-traversy, uh, if anybody who has seen the full two-hour, at least the first 10 minutes of the full two-hour video clip has uh, no doubt uh, you know, got a taste of what a spellbinder uh, sounds like. You know, this was probably the most, you know, just characteropathic, pathological type of spellbinder with the, the black uh, Hebrew Israelite, the things that he was saying and shouting down the children and all of the, you know, just the horrible things that were coming out of his mouth caused uh, several people to stop and try and argue with him and reason and get him to stop. But he would, he didn't, and he just kept on, you know, he, then he started, you know, hurling slurs at them. And while, you know, his lackeys just stood there going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so this is what I, uh, I had always imagined a spellbinder to sound, to, to look like mm -hmm. and to sound like. And so I was, you know, it seems to me that, you know, from the way that Lobachevsky describes it, the spellbinder is the one doing all of the, the spreading of this, the ideology, spreading the pathology, really whipping up things to get them as polarized as possible, because part of the spellbinder's interest is in provoking a reaction. That they have a specific knowledge that you know the pair, you know, everything can be seen in a moral sort of situation and 
you know, provoke a moral response. And they want to provoke the moral response because that feeds into that dynamic. And that's obviously, you know, one thing that was going on there. But, you know, you don't see that same level of pathology, I think, in America writ large. Mm -hmm. Except, you know, I realize that I th the, the real spellbinder is the media. You know, this uh, the CNN, you know, the whole fake news media seems like it's functioning mm -hmm. in a similar way. It's not like, uh, it's not the frothing at the mouth. Yeah, it's like spellbinder light. It's a spellbinder light because of, you know, the technology has, I think, uh, altered that aspect of polarization mm -hmm. and plus, you know, the times that we're living in. I don't think, you know, spellbinders, we're not living in, a, in an era where a spellbinder could be that receptive. I mean, even in the coverage of this, this whole non-troversy, nobody even talks, no, you know, there's no coverage of the black Israeli, uh, Hebrew Israelites and, you know, a real negative, not, not a focus on mm -hmm. them, you know, we're going to discuss them. No, because people just write them off. Mm -hmm. they, we don't care about their opinion because they're obviously crazy. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're trying to, you know, get an idea of what the whole story is, then you see, you know, people like Ben Shapiro and others focusing in on what they're saying. But other than that, you just write them off because they're crazy. Yeah. So we're, it still seems like there's that there's a level of common sense, yeah. a healthy common sense mm -hmm. that is uh, a, a good sign. But yeah. then the problem is, is that the, um, you know, this, if you get down into, uh, if you're stuck with just a moralizing interpretation of all these events, which I'm sure everyone sees on their Facebook feed, and I mean, all of us are guilty of, I'm sure, in some degree or another. I mean, because obviously we feel disgust when when children are, you know, when people call for the deaths of children for doing nothing, or just the deaths of children mm -hmm. in general. I mean, that's obviously something that is nauseating, disgusting, and you have a moral response to it. But that moral response in and of itself is not going to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. It's not going to, it's going to make the problem worse if you, if right. you act on it. When, and that's what all these, you know, these crazy pathological pathologicals, they wanted these kids to react mm -hmm. emotionally. They wanted somebody to get hit. They wanted a kid, they wanted the kids to, you know, chant something racist. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, and, you know, that's why they put the, that little clip up there because that's what they want. Yeah. They, they didn't get it, but they made it up. You know, obviously a lot of it was to distract from the, you know, other things going on in the world, but this is how, a, I guess, a spellbinder would look in the 21st century. Well, uh, I, I, I think uh, you did a good job of kind of like separating the, some different, some things that should be separated that I think often get conflated. So when, like, when you look at the media, I think actually like the positive thing about the media, if I can say anything positive about the mainstream media, is that it hasn't descended yet into the like you know the level of like the the actual like pathological spellbinder. Um, like I said at the very beginning of the show, I think that the U.S. is probably at least heading in that direction where it would be a possibility at some point. Um, I think where you actually find such spellbinders are you know like on the streets with the the black Israelites, but also like in the universities because I think you can find some spellbinders like that teaching university courses like in gender studies and. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, and uh, and things like that in the in those humanities courses where where there is a political ideology for, with the purpose of like um, radical revolution, and you I think you will find in some university professors um, that they are that type of spellbinder. They're they're not you know they're not um, pushing the same ideology as the 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 black Israelites, but it is an, an ideology uh, and one that is just as dangerous and just as pathological. 
but you, but I think that's where you'll find them. So that, that's at least something that's still relatively positive and commonsensical about even the mainstream media is that they haven't descended that low yet because there are still depths to which the media can sink that they haven't sunk yet. Like things aren't, aren't as bad as they could be as bad as they are. So separate that out. But also like if we want to identify what symptoms the media is actually suffering from, it would be, I think if I could like boil it down to two, it would be moralizing and hysteria, um, which are kind of different diseases than like the spellbinding, um, they can still there is still an element of spellbinding. It's not precisely the same thing, but you have this this moralizing that um, that well it then like that framework that hysteria and the moralizing then um, that makes the opening for the spellbinders on the lower levels like that are um, you know maybe leading um, you know antifa marches and stuff like that like where that's where you get into the actual kind of like um, more demonstrably pathological behaviors. It's like you don't see you don't see it happening on the TV. It's kind of like a trickle down effect that happens when, like through this um, through this kind of um, um, like Borg mind that gets that gets um, projected into the mass psyche through these through these media narratives. But what you really have in the media is this is hysteria and uh, and moralizing, and like like so the bad thing about hysteria is that it spreads and it's irrational and that it leads to false beliefs and it, and it like incorporates false beliefs. And the the bad thing about moralizing, like you said, is that it actually doesn't work. Like um like all this moralizing about uh well about these kids and even about Russia. Like really, what it comes down to the like the 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 main thing about the like the anti-Russia and the anti-Trump narrative, it is a moralizing stance. It is Orange Man bad and Putin Man bad. Like these are bad people, um, bad systems. They're evil. And um, they they they're just bad, and we need to do something about it. And um, on like in our current like levels of society, the the well in the in the states, let's take the states as, as an example. Like the things to do about bad people <clears throat> are either to kill them, to sanction them, um, to do anything you can to destroy them, um, and and that's just the way the the U.S. operates around the world with its so-called enemies. It's enemies who are often no bad, no worse, and often better than some of its closest allies. So, like you'll see, um, you'll see behaviors of its uh, of its enemies, or even alleged behaviors of its enemies that are just like absolutely like trashed in the media, like gone after. It's like human rights violations and you know illegal Venez- invasions. Venezuela versus France, for mm-hmm. instance. Right. Yeah. Look at Venezuela versus France, where mm-hmm. it's like. Uh, you know, the, <clears throat> if you describe the French protesters, um, you know, without using the the nationalities or the names of the, the, either Macron or or French, and you just describe that, people would say, "Oh, that's Venezuela." And actually, that description is France, and the description of the actual protesters in like Venezuela and of Maduro is actually like better than the description of Macron. It's like because Macron doesn't have anybody supporting him. <laughs> right and uh and and it's the majority of the people that are against macron yeah. and it's like whereas in venezuela you have this minority of people that uh that are supportive of these of the opposition elements um and and yet they are it's held up as this huge problem whereas in france it's this minor problem when it's actually the reality is totally inverted and of course you have examples like you know with saudi arabia saudi arabia does um you know everything that they accuse like um like Assad of doing 
um, or, or, you know, or of Putin. But then you look at like Israel and Israel gets off the hook for anything. You know, they can kill kids and journalists and medics and, you know, just murder them in cold blood and no statement whatsoever. You know, we'll stand by our partners. Um, you know, Israel has a right to defend themselves against um, volunteer medics and journalists and, uh, you know, 10-year-old boys. So we won't say anything about that. Just, you know, it's just utter hypocrisy and double standards, but that's just uh, the... That's just the norm for um, you know America, but one of the things that um, that um, Lobachevsky actually says about moralizing, he's got a he's got a section at the end of this chapter um, where he's talking about it. He basically says that um, the like this moralistic interpretation of reality, one of the downsides of it is that it leads people to overvalue like physical force or violence or you know military force. And um, so I'll read one paragraph from this last section. He says, And so it is that the methods of counteracting evil are mitigated in their severity. Well, he's talking about how, um, you know, basically over time, um, you know, uh, methods and norms of, of warfare have actually, you know, gotten better, at least in mass consciousness, right? It's like, you know, there's a trend towards the abolition of capital punishment, which has taken place in you know, numerous countries, not the U.S. yet, but, uh, you know, Russia's done that. Um, several countries have, like Canada doesn't have the death penalty, etc. And it is because of these kind of humanistic values that have uh, that have kind of spread over the last 100, 200 years. And um, so he says that, um, and so it is that the methods of counteracting evil are being mitigated in mitigated in their severity. But at the same time, effective methods to protect the citizenry against the birth of evil and force are not indicated. This creates an ever-widening gap between the need for counteraction and the means at our disposal. As a result, many kinds of evil can develop at every social scale. So he's basically saying this is the downside of, of these kind of humanistic values, is that, well, it's like now we don't really have any like defense against this kind of thing. You know, at least you know, taking that as the norm and the trend and however many people actually believe that. Um, but he says, under such, cir- uh, under such circumstances, it may be understandable that some voices clamor for a return to the old-fashioned iron-fisted methods so inimical to the development of human thought. So he's basically saying there's actually a reason why, you know, if you look in the media, you'll you'll get calls for, um, you know, for going to war with, you know, with other countries or, you know, for, you know, this would this was the justification for the whole anti-communism thing. It's like that that's the reason why why some anti-communists were so fervent to the point where they were willing to blow up the world is because, you know, um, it it wasn't just because there were the presence of like um, people with you know specific ge- like geopolitical machinations and like hidden agendas. It's like no, some people were just you know relatively normal people. Like and relatively normal isn't to say you know great. It's just normal average people who see something that they perceive that they feel as this threat because it is a threat and. The like the the kind of logical conclusion is like oh well we got to kill them like that's just uh, in a sense that's just what humans have always done what average humans have always done there have, uh, of course there have been always pe- there have always been people who kind of are the voices of reason and say well no that's kind of crazy you can't just do that and then you've always had people who are just pathological who are egging the situation on because they actually want chaos and destruction but in the middle you have people who kind of like are you know well, you know, what should we do about that? And so that's the, and, but the, the problem that Lobachevsky points out is that even that is dangerous 
because when that when those kind of policies get inst- get instituted and get put into practice that is a further opening for for ponderogenesis it's like when a when a group uh, or, or when a nation um, you know takes defensive measures either against you know some internal or external threat then the government takes on more powers and there's abuse of power and corruption and then you know the cycle starts all over again um, so it's like what uh, what do you do in that situation? Well, you know, he basically says, "Read my book." So that's uh, you know, because there's a lot of a lot of alternatives in there. But um, uh, maybe, well, there's just one other thing that he wrote about morality. Um, he says, uh, "Nothing poisons the human soul and deprives us of our capacity to understand reality more objectively than this very obedience to that common human tendency to take a moralistic view of human behavior." And so when you look at, uh, you know, the situation that we see around us and, you know, you've seen in the past, just obviously moralizing, just saying that's wrong, that's bad, and then, you know, frothing and then, you know, becoming angry and bitter and resentful at the world because of how evil it is, you know, this is just another way for that virus, mm-hmm. uh, ponogenesis, to spread. And if you think about it, and, you know, not just in terms of psychopaths and spellbinders and character paths and all that, but when you think of it in terms of a virus, that's what it wants. It wants to spread. It doesn't care if you're a liberal or you're a libertarian or a conservative. Mm-hmm. It wants you to get into that, it wants to bring you into that mindset and then, and then spread throughout society. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's basically, you know, what uh, what just just viewing things in a moralistic framework can, will lead to. It'll lead you to be, you know, bitter and angry because obviously the things that you see, you know, that that these other people are doing, they degrade everything that you hold sacred, and that that happens inside. And if you have values, that you know that corrodes and rusts out your values, and you know, so that's just. Uh, the, just having that as your framework for viewing the polarization process is not sufficient. Mm-hmm. Well, he says one thing about that because in, in the end of this chapter, he's basically going through these kind of methods of counteracting evil and kind of what works and what doesn't. And um, you know, he makes the point that um, you know this whole, whole moralistic framework—it's like it is—it's um, very disappointing to have that bubble burst for people. <clears throat> it's like because we want like. Um, What's the kind of, I can't remember if it's a retributive justice. What's the, you know, basically just punishment. Like justice is like, you you did this crime. Well, we are going to punish you to an equal degree as to that crime. And uh, Lobachevsky argues that, well, then that doesn't actually work. It's not, a, it's not a good approach. But it's like, we need that as humans, right? It's like, we see someone doing something bad and we, we want them to suffer for it. Um, primarily for us, you know, and, uh, you know, there's a, an argument to be made for that. But, um, but he basically says, well, you know, it doesn't work. Um, you know, there's a, he, he really tries to hit home the, the idea of separating out the two things, like the separating out that moralistic interpretation, that immediate visceral reaction, like emotional reaction to, to, uh, like an actual instance of evil, uh, you know, a tangible thing that has happened and the kind of scientific, you know, rational or rational way of looking at it where you're tracing the causality. And it's like when you, it's hard to do both of those things at the same time. It's like you're either like in the moment, like, you know, fists clenched and, uh, you know, you got your your fight face on or you're kind of thinking and being like, oh, well, this happened and this happened and this happened. It's like you can't, it's kind of hard to do both at the same time. And it's kind of hard to go back to the, to the, the fist, fists clench, the fists clenched 
after you've done that thinking, it's like, okay, now I've thought it through and now I'm really angry again, right? It doesn't really, it doesn't really work that right. way. But he, you know, so it's, um, well, I just thought that was an interesting thing, an interesting thing to think about. But in that context, he says, um, so we, we have the right and duty to critically judge our own behavior and the moral value of our motivations. This is conditioned by our conscience, a phenomenon as ubiquitous as it is incomprehensible within the, boundary, within the boundaries of naturalistic thinking. Even if armed with all the present and future accomplishments of ponderology, will we ever be in a position to abstract and evaluate the individual blame of another person? In terms of theory, this appears ever more doubtful. In terms of practice, even more unnecessary. So, like the point of, and he brings this back to kind of like Christian values and how like actually taking a, a psychobiological like perspective, like ponderology, actually leads to a re- reaffirmation of Christian values. It's like, you know, uh, judge not lest ye be judged, um, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And what measure ye meet, it shall be meted to you again, uh, from Gospel of Matthew. But basically, that's the that's the direction that such thought leads in, and that's actually the direction that um, what's his name um, psychologist wrote the book Behave last year or the year before Sapolsky. Sapolsky, yeah. Um, like that's the direction he takes for slightly different reasons. Like there are guys like him, and I, there are a few others that have come forward, um, like writing articles and are basically arguing that um, um, like retributive justice is actually wrong because humans have no free will. Essentially, he's saying like. Like these criminals can't control what they do, so like, what's the point of even of of retributive justice? You know, we can there there are still things that we can do, and that's the same point that Lobachevsky makes. Not the free will thing, but basically, there are still things that we can do without you know that uh, that uh, you know vis- visceral um, just kind of like you know base need for retributive justice. Um, that. Um, yeah, he says, keep in mind that understanding and forgiveness does not exclude correction of conditions and taking prophylactic measures. It's like, so you think about kind of like the prison systems in like uh, like Norway and like Scandinavian countries that um, I think it's Norway that kind of has the most kind of like radical uh, prisons where it's basically like the like hardcore criminals are separated out from society, but they basically live in like kind of like a, a four star resort and um, like the. It's, they don't have abusive prison guards or anything. It's kind of just like you can live your life, but you're living you're living it separated from everyone else. And the crime rate is actually down. It's like you know they have low low murder rates, low recidivism. It's like it seems like that actually works. So it's like um, at some point, I think you know people have to ask themselves, what's more important? You know, actually getting results or fulfilling my need to 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 see that person suffer because they did something wrong. It's like I I think. You know, as societies, it's like it, it just makes more sense to take the, you know, the route of, well, you know, I, I don't get my jollies from, from seeing that person, you know, suffer because they did something wrong. But look, you know, all these things got better as a result of, you know, just taking these slightly, um, you know, uncommon, uh, you know, methods of dealing with criminals and crime. It's like, well, that's, the, that's at least what. Lobachevsky says, says, so keeping in mind, um, you know, that distinction between like conscience and, and blame, it's like, uh, well, I think what he says is basically, um, 
you know, it's Vader. It's very Petersonian. It's like we do have the right and duty to critic to criticize ourselves. You know, our own failings. It's like when it comes to someone else, it's like, well, we can, you know, we can have our opinions about it. We can have our feelings about it. But really, it's like what we should be thinking is, well, what will work? Mm-hmm. You know, what is the correct action to take? What is the action to take that will lead to the best result? Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't often do that. Well, the the default is is actually like we see with, uh, you know, with all the people with this mega kid. It's like the the fault is always in someone else. Um, the fault's never in my in myself because I am a, a, a morally virtuous pers- person. I, I am a believer in the correct ideology. I have the correct morals. I am actually a good person. And it's all of you that are horrible people. It's all of you that need to get your act together. It's all you need to you need you need to change. You need to get in line. You need to like adopt my morals. And this is what my morals are. This is what I believe. This is what uh you know, this is what's right. You know, this is this is what's morally wrong. You know, listen to me. I've got it all figured out. Just read my tweets. It's obvious that I am a, a morally virtuous person by the things that I tweet out every day. Um, can't you tell? And it's obvious by reading my tweets who is the enemy. It's you're the enemy because because A, B, and C that I, I that I can identify by seeing a picture of you and and reading a few of your tweets and a few of the things that you said as a joke, you know, eight to ten years ago. I know who you are. I know you're the enemy. And you know, case closed. It's like sorry, no that that's the total opposite of what it actually means to be a, a psychologically healthy individual. It's like, yeah, you know, um, t- you know, uh, criticize yourself first, you know, identify your own faults first and don't, you know, presume to, to, to be some moral being, some like morally virtuous being when you're just as, uh, you know, just as in the muck as everyone else, if not further in the muck, because you're so convinced of your, you know, your elevated status as some holy righteous being. But, uh, well, rant over for that um maybe we'll uh we'll save some of these other sections for another time uh, another week but maybe oh yeah i wanted to read one thing from the section on hysteria because it reminded me of france um so just a way of connecting it to another current event that we've just already mentioned so far um basically he's saying that this hysteria kind of proceeds from the upper classes that's where it's kind of most um endemic is uh is in the kind of ruling classes is where you get the most hysteria because they they have to repress the most um the most material you know they have to basically repress all of the um all of the negative um all of the negative things that come from like the lower classes right all of their complaints because when you're living easy it's harder to 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 um to acknowledge like the the things that make other people's lives difficult that's just you know human nature, but with like in that so in that context, uh, Lobachevsky writes, um, when the habits of subconscious selection and substitution of thought data spread to the macro social level, a society tends to develop contempt for factual criticism, and to humiliate anyone sounding an alarm. Contempt is also shown for other nations which have maintained normal thought patterns, and for their opinions egotistic and it's like arrogant thought terrorization is accomplished by the society itself and its processes of conversive like hysterical thinking this obviates the need for censorship of the press theater or broadcasting as a pathologically hypersensitive censor lives within the citizens themselves so this is more i, I thought a good description of like um uh, we can think about the american media right um 
contempt for factual criticism. You see this on Twitter, um, you know, from both sides. It's like, uh, especially uh, specifically in the context of this mega hat kid. It's like, you know, just trying, try, try getting through to one of the people or any of the people that have just ripped this kid apart for smirking um, with any kind of factual um, analysis. It's not going to work. And like to anyone, to to anyone sounding alarm, they are publicly humiliated. And you see this with. You know, with all of the issues, all the hot button uh, issues today, like with, uh, you know, uh, transgender issues or, um, you know, gender issues, you know, like uh, the the so-called gender wage gap and all that stuff. Like any of these, any of these issues, anyone sounding the alarm about something like saying, well, actually, you know, something's wrong here, not in the way that you all think it's wrong. Here's something wrong with your analysis. Um, here's something, here's a direction you're going into that you might want to think twice about. It's like, no, you're going to be publicly humiliated and ejected as a Nazi. Um, and then again, the, as a result of this kind of, of these thinking processes of these, this kind of like internal, um, flipping of reality in, in the minds of, of all these individuals who have kind of bought into the, to the, um, you know, the ideological talking points you don't there is no need for actual censorship because everyone has internalized those beliefs already this is the this is the state of a hystericized society um where you know there is no official strong-armed government censorship um of the media it's because everyone the people in the media already believe all the talking points it's like you don't need that you know and it's it's the same like pretty much in like most western states it's like in you know in the UK they still have um, like official censorship, but it's about specific things, right? So you, you can't name Pablo Miller, who's the, you know, who's the handler of Sergei Skripal. Um, that would be against the law um, because they put out these, uh, you know, these directives for what the media can and can't say about certain subjects. But for the most part, it's like the, the, the government propaganda gets propagandized simply because the journalists are willing to tell it because they actually believe it and they, they buy into it or, you know, they don't even, or they don't care because, you know, they're getting their paycheck and they, they just have no kind of like no real values themselves for like journalistic integrity, etc. But uh, continuing on, um, when three egos govern, egoism, egotism, and egocentrism, basically like just selfishness, arrogance, arrogance uh, self-centeredness, um, the feeling of social links and responsibility toward others disappear. And the society in question splinters into groups ever more hostile to each other. Again, perfect description of the United States today. Um, you know, no responsibility towards like the other side. It's like, uh, you know, neither neither side really feels responsible for the other, like, um, or um, you know, treats it with any kind of like social res respect, or you know, no one is w really willing to acknowledge. You you are essentially like my marriage partner in this country. It's like we have these Democrats and Republicans. We kind of have to learn to live together. It's like no. Instead, we're going to push each other further away. Um, and uh, the left, I think, is more guilty of this than the right. Um, I think like conservatives are mo actually more willing to live and let live than uh, than liberals are in the United States, which uh, is kind of creepy. Um, when a hysterical environment stops differentiating the opinions of limited, not quite normal people from those of normal, reasonable persons, this opens the door for activation of the pathological factors of a various nature to enter in. Individuals we have already met who are governed by a pathological view of reality and abnormal goals caused by their different nature 
are able to develop their activities in such conditions. If a given society does not manage to overcome the state of hystericization under its ethnic or ethnological and political circumstances, a huge bloody tragedy can be the result. Um, Oh, and one more. A greater resistance to hystericization characterizes those social groups which earn their daily bread by daily effort and where the practicalities of everyday life force the mind to think soberly and reflect on generalities. As an example, peasants continue to view the hysterical customs of the well-to-do classes through their own earthy perception, earthy perception of psychological reality and their sense of humor. Similar customs on the part of the bourgeoisie incline workers to bitter criticism and revolutionary anger. Whether couched in economic, ideological, or political terms, the criticism and demands of these social groups always contain a component of psychological, moral, and anti-hysterical motivation. For this reason, it is most appropriate to consider these demands with, del- with deliberation and take these classes' feelings into account. On the other hand, tragic results can derive from thoughtless action, paving the way for spellbinders to make themselves heard. So basically, like uh, I take that as a, a, a recommendation to, to the French government, that you actually have to listen to these people, otherwise you're just going to make things worse. Um, and you actually have to listen to the regular people. And the same thing with the states. You know, all the all the regular people who are saying, no, you know, this is what we're actually concerned with. This is what we actually think about where you know the direction this country should go in. And you, like all you people in the media, you are kind of like living in this other world. Um, you know, and and with the, with the well, and it applies to politicians, all politicians you know, left and right in the States. They're living in this world that's just like, you know, off this planet with no connection to to the people that they presume to represent. And this is the point that Tucker Carlson has been making recently and that I think he made in his, his recent book. He has He's of the same opinion. That like the, you know, the leadership in the United States is like, they don't, they don't listen to the people and they don't care. And uh, I think that's the norm. Um, the norm for like all countries is that you get a ruling elite that, uh, you know, primarily represents their own interests um it's just that in the united, in the united states and other countries at least there is the like the the facade or the um you know the idea that they shouldn't that it should be the opposite way and so they actually should be held to a higher standard um but either either because it's impossible they don't or um or it's just this this result of this uh, like spiritual crisis in American politics, and maybe it can, maybe it can go, to, maybe it can reach that some, you know, some way somehow, um, you know, uh, kind of get to a a better system, or or you know, even keeping the same ideals and the same traditions to actually kind of try to go back to those by by rooting out the 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 fakers essentially, the people just gaming the system. But um, I guess uh, I don't know, probably not. But uh, anything else that you guys wanted to add in there, or uh, nope, you summed it up pretty oh, well. And okay, then we will end it there. Um, I think next week we're going to come back to talking about evolution and uh, intelligent design, that whole debate, and presenting maybe a third option. I don't know. We'll see. And then we'll, of course, be coming back to Ponderology another time and getting the stuff we didn't get to talk to you today. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Have a nice week, everybody. Bye.